the idea that correlation does not imply causation, is that only something that statisticians are very comfortable with? Or is that a, is that a common turn of phrase? Like, is, is that a publicly common turn of phrase, regardless of people's ability to actually apply that concept? I feel like it's, it's super common. Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, even, uh, I mean, as far back as when I was, I was a bio major, I'm sure even in high school, it's just a mantra, right? That gets yeah. thrown around. And what I like to remind people of is, uh, you know, these, these sort of mantras are, I don't know if platitude's the right word, these, uh, uh, kind of like hackneyed phrases that get thrown around a lot. There's a cognitive reason to get thrown around, right? It's like for a lot of these, they're, they're reminders because we suck at them. So there are things that we we've developed little phrases around to remind us, um, and and correlation uh, doesn't imply causation is is one of those. Uh, but in my experience, it gets diluted to correlation is not causation, mm -hmm. which you know colloquially that's fine. You don't have to be as precise as saying implies causation, but yeah. So I feel like it's it's fairly uh, widely known, um, and then to to get to uh, folks who really start to dig into it, then then it gets real narrow real fast. Hey everyone, welcome back. Today we have Eric J. Daza for, I believe, his second interview with us. Is that true? Is it our his second interview? It's true. Yeah, okay. second. Yeah. yeah. the 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 problem with um with actually interacting with people and talking to them, like colleagues, outside of interviews, is that um you forget how how often you've actually had like podcast conversation versus you know just a normal email conversation or a normal catch up conversation. But yeah, um. Just uh, so we're going to be talking about um, the Andrew Gelman Occupatari paper on important ideas. Um, we're going to be talking about some causal inference. And uh, maybe just to get started off, uh, three questions begin. One, are you happy to be back on the show? I am very happy to be back on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Very good. I'm, I'm happy to have you back as well. Um, question number two, what does the J in Eric J. Daza stand for? Oh, I love it. I haven't been asked this in a long time. And if you've ever watched The Simpsons, you know the answer. I do know the answer. Which is? Stands for J. That's right. Very good. <laughs> and it does. All right. And finally, um, if you had to name the top eight most important statistical ideas in the past 50 years off the top of your head, what would they be? Oh, my gosh. Eight? Yeah, Ooh. yeah, eight. Okay, well, uh, I mean, causal inference is a big one. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say counterfactuals. Uh, I'm going to split it up: counterfactuals uh, and causal inference, uh, directed acyclic graphs and causal inference. Um, uh, I'm just so biased towards this, but um, I'll also say actually, uh, seminal work in N of one trials. This is also, you know, it's showing my bias, but um, I say that because it's moving towards using those methods uh, to analyze huge streams of single time series, multivariate time series, wearable data. So that's why I think it's important. Um, well, I got the three. Um, I would say it's really just a lot of the, the, the ideas in this article. I know that's kind of a, a cop out, but I, I liked a lot of these. I can start reading them off, but we're going to get into that. Yeah, um, honestly, I would have accepted if you just like picked up the paper, put it right in front of your face and said, the top eight most important statistical ideas, in my opinion, are the following in order. Counterfactual causal inference, right? Bootstrapping and simulation-based inference, mm -hmm. over-parameterized models and regularization, Bayesian multi-level models. So definitely Andrew Gelman network here. Um, yeah. Generic computation algorithms. That's a nice one. 
um, adaptive yeah. design analysis, robust inference, and exploratory data analysis. Those are the eight that I would have selected. Um, what what does the paper say? Let's see. How about that? It looks like it looks like those eight in that exact same order. How about that? Look at that. Yeah, look at that. Wow. Cool. Yeah, statistically significant finding. That that is that's the most statistically significant of findings. Yeah, great. So um, actually, ah, uh, that actually brings up a point. That one thing that I'm surprised that they didn't mention here. You know, the real most important statistical idea of the last fifty years is mm. the major advancements that we made as a profession on p-value hacking. You know, mm. everything we've done really well. We've mm. gotten really damn good at p-value hacking over the last fifty years. Like, I I don't think that. I don't think the scientific community has been any better at p-value hacking than it is at this very moment. Um, yeah, it's just available to everyone. Um, my cat, you know, dragged some statistical significant out from under the couch earlier, just playing mm -hmm. with it, letting it sort of escape and then catching it again. Um, yeah. So a yeah, cat, it's... don't do that. And then it let it go. And then some sociology professor swooped in and took it and ran off to probably Duke University uh, to do yeah. something with it. Yeah, but yeah, um, I think in ecology, it's called the catch and release p-value, right? Yeah. Catch and release p yeah, yeah. Catch, yeah. yeah, you tag it and you see if it comes back again. Um, uh, yeah, cool. Yeah. But you got to throw it back in the same pond. So yeah, yeah, yeah de definitely. What you got to do is you got to you got to double, triple dip in the same pond. Yeah, yeah. Same. yeah and by good. pond, we mean cesspool. That's <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, the uh, so basically, uh, I'll pop the picture of the uh, the article up, but it's uh, Andrew Gelman and Aki Vitari, and it's what are the most important statistical ideas of the past fifty years, and front and center, the very first one that they have listed is counterfactual causal inference, and I thought that this would be, I thought you'd be the guy to bring on for this, you know, um, because I know nothing. And you know something, and that is a very good power sort of uh, dichotomy to have on this. So nothing, nothing. Yeah. So maybe I can just uh, pop out this. Um, the, here's what they say. Um, they go on. This is basically first page, uh, first subsection where they say, um, the key idea is that causal identification is possible under assumptions. Oh, I'm sorry. No, here it is. Um. The idea of bridging the gap on one hand between naive causal interpretation of observational inferences and on the other, recognition that correlation does not imply causation. Um, and I think that's a pretty tidy summary. One thing I actually want to ask uh, is the idea that correlation does not imply causation. Is that only something that statisticians are very comfortable with? Or is that a is that a common turn of phrase? Like, is, is that a publicly common turn of phrase, regardless of people's ability to actually apply that concept. I feel like it's, it's super common. Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, even, uh, I mean, as far back as when I was, I was a bio major, I'm sure even in high school, it's just a mantra, right. That gets yeah. thrown around. And what I like to remind people of is, uh, you know, these, these sort of mantras are, I don't know if platitudes the right word, these, uh, uh, kind of like hacking phrases that get thrown around a lot there's a cognitive reason to get thrown around, right? It's like for a lot of these, they're, they're reminders because we suck at them. So there are things that we, we've developed little phrases around to remind us. Um, and, and correlation, 
uh, doesn't imply causation is, is one of those. Uh, but in my experience, it gets diluted to correlation is not causation, mm -hmm. which, you know, colloquially, that's fine. You don't have to be as precise as saying implies causation. But yeah, so I feel like it's it's fairly uh, widely known. Um, and then to to get to uh, folks who really start to dig into it, then then it gets real narrow real fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess uh, what was interesting about this is that uh, they say that um, that w the one of the main benefits, one of the main sort of uh, developments is that um, we become more precise. So there's more precision on the assumptions required for causal inference. So the idea is that, you know, we have these methods and we've become now precise on what is necessary to attach these correlational relationships to causational relationships. Is that is that is that a good way to start with this? Yeah, I think so. Uh, the and I, you know this the phrase here I'm reading it to a much more precision on the assumptions required for causal inference to me is a key phrase because uh, you know Gelman Vitari mentioned this later on. Um, causal inference those methods largely are concept and theory uh, based methods. They're not so much coding or you know on that end of things. Um, it's more, it's, it's really classically about what are the assumptions in play for you to make these conclusions, but how you, how you do the mechanics of it doesn't really change. You still fit a, a regression model. You still do those things, uh, but because we're able to say for more precisely in mathematical terms, what the assumptions are, we can then apply those assumptions to generate new, uh, you know, math logic based approaches to do the adjustments that we need. Yeah, no, that's it. That's a super interesting bit because one thing that I've I've mentioned this a few times, actually, maybe even with you, um, where and uh, it actually comes up on like the very next line that they mentioned, where say different methods for causal inference have been developed in different fields. And what I think is interesting is you know as you talk about you know you can do the same computation, use this exact same model, but whether or not you can make causal inference is heavily based on the assumptions. And what I think is interesting is that when we usually inflict stats on early uh, on early stage students the uh, discipline in which you learn your statistical models comes with those implicit assumptions about the data and no one bothers to specify it. So effectively you'll have the econ student with certain assumptions and that that is what like in, in, in linear regression encompasses all that, those ideas to them. And then when they go into biology, same model, same, literally the same mathematics, same computation, but those assumptions aren't there and they might wind up sounding like a fool. Yes, I uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, give a soft abstract example of yes. something like that where and this is where working in data science is really um, uh, it's it's really uh, fulfilling uh, and also challenging. But I, I don't emphasize the challenging part. It really is. I, I do derive joy from this. But seeing those assumptions, like you said, uh, become unearthed, where you're coming from a field where. It, uh, you know, your regression was causal because you were doing all the experimental manipulation and you know how those models will fit. You internalize that because it's very intuitive as a human to look at, to see causation. And it's not that intuitive to see correlation. So then you come into like the data science field and now you're dealing with variables where you didn't experiment with them. You didn't change the, me mechanically change the X, right? Um, but then because there's a client deadline to meet or there's some other pressure, those assumptions just get just get assumed they get jammed in and it takes a little more work to back it out and say oh those don't apply anymore in this situation so yeah totally uh totally get that and yeah. i've seen that at play and do you think uh 
So for example, I, I like the idea of where if the baseline is considered, you're actually experimenting, you're controlling for the data. Mm-hmm. And I think what is interesting is in so many of statistical fields, our basis is from experimental ideas. R.A. Fisher was an experimentalist. Like he, he experimented and he designed methods around his experiments. Um, who, who, who else do we have? Uh, um, Gertrude, Gertrude uh, Cox, uh, for example, yeah. was about designing experiments, you know, uh, massive experiments that took up real big fields, but, but it was around experimental design. And so mm-hmm. I think that, um, uh, uh, the, the other famous David Cox, you know, he, he was also, uh, you know, designing some experiments. A lot of his data also was observational, but, um, you know, again, there, there's an experiment. Well, I mean, his, that one is tricky to unpack. I'm not going to step into that one because that, that, that one would take us too long, but, um, yeah. So can, can you talk a little bit more about th- this way in which there's the experimental design and what sort of that leads to? And then we'll next talk about when the experiment, the gloves are off and we're talking about observational stuff. Right. Yeah, no, that's great. I was going to bring up that, that, um, that also, uh, to that split bucket kind of view, right. Where it's, it's artificial because there's a lot of gray in between where you'll have an experimental designed or an experimental design that then has observational components. Because for example, in a drug trial where you, you assign treatment to control, that's great. But then you have folks that don't adhere or don't engage mostly due to a lot of times due to the design of the trial or the, the drug is too hard to take the way it was meant to be, whatever. Um, now you're starting to creep into observational land because you didn't, uh, you now have to account for um, um, phenomena that arose in the process that you then have to deal with at the end. And that becomes more observational. Um, and you slip into the realm of um, effectiveness studies in pharma, where now it's all just, it's out in the world and you didn't control who's taking what. Uh, so now that's kind of the fully observational side of it. But yeah, a lot of those, uh, the, the two big buckets are those. And these days, the experimental part is thriving in uh, fields outside of uh, clinical stats and health, right? Because they have to do with, um, yeah, we are experimenting, but we're doing it on a massive scale across so many different people or units that now we have to, to account for um, all the interference that happens between those units. Um, and that's where uh, causal inference is sort of thriving in this new direction that it didn't before because they didn't have experiments at this scale. You know, not, not like a Fisher's theory. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's 100 you know, units, maybe a few hundred at most. Yeah. So maybe just to provide a really concrete example, uh, one that probably we are going to be familiar with and probably a lot of the re- listeners are familiar to, given that I tend to bring up a lot of the same examples because I'm essentially a one trick pony. Um, but like, you know, we, we can have a, we can have some type of clinical intervention that let's just say requires you to take a pill at 9am, 12pm, 3pm, 6pm. Um, and 9 p.m. You know, it's just, you, know, you take a pill, hopefully that's what, four or five times a day on the oh. hour. And you do that. And I don't know, let's let's just really throw a loop in this one and have them also measuring their blood pressure at the same time. Um, that is too much to ask for the vast majority of clinical patients, particularly that the people who need to go into clinical trials are not the type who can adhere to the type. They, they typically aren't the ones who can adhere rigorously to those type mm-hmm. of daily regimes. And so effectively, 
no matter how you randomize and control and stratify, you're still going to be adding an observational element because you're not going to be truly controlling for treatment as well as you think you can. And to whatever extent you can, there's still going to be all these other effects that you can't control. Uh, you know, family history, uh, the, the, their drinking habits on top of that. And so there's effectively, I really like it how there's this, it's a continuum on how close you are to an actual experimental design versus an observational uh, observational trial. And personally, when I also believe that there's probably a large amount of personalized effect size in these. So effectively, the effect size is a single, honestly, I, I don't want to sound too basic, but I also believe that the effect size is probably a distribution over each individual. Um, and that it's a conditional distribution too, as, as you would like to point out. You know, it's a conditional distribution on that individual. So there's a lot of variability, even what that individual has. And then we're trying to stack these things up and try to create population-based estimates. Um, the, it's, it's just impossible to control for. Um, so we try. Well, you know, really quick, I won't, uh, I definitely won't, won't object to that Bayesian connection because uh, it's also a very NF1 uh, concept that everyone has a distribution of effect sizes for a given effect. Like that's that's a lot of my work that I do is what's the average individual treatment effect taken over multiple instances. Um, and the reason it ties in so so well to a lot of the Bayesian work is because guess what? A lot of the common approaches uh, to uh, aggregating across people, even with NF1 studies, is through multi-level modeling because every person's their own study. So there you go. How do we model that? Well, every person has their own intercept and it has some variation around it from you know instance to instance. Voila, now you have a more structured uh, aggregated out of one. So, so yeah, totally makes sense to me as uh, a concept. Yeah. Um, on this, one, one of the things that is uh, that he mentions, you know, about or they mention is that uh, on the issue of that, a lot of this can actually get boiled down to uh, missingness. And essentially, you consider it to be a missingness problem. That causal inference comes down to missingness. And what's interesting about this is I'm actually uh, uh, one of the papers in the philosophy of data science uh, uh, journal section that's coming up is essentially it's meant to be a casual introduction to causal inference. And the uh, student at Duke who's writing this paper um, made this very same uh, analogy right off the bat. And as someone who doesn't know very much about causal inference, oh, that's a really cool way to describe it. And he gave an example why I didn't understand it. But can you flush this out? Why is this a missing, a data missing this problem? Um, and then we, to whatever extent that isn't good enough of a descriptor, we can cover that later. But why is it good enough to call this, you know, causal inference is a data missing this problem? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have, I, I actually have a surprise, surprise. I, I have developed somewhat strong opinions about that view of it. <laughs> but to explain the mechanics, uh, a lot of the theory in uh, potential outcomes or counterfactual based causal inference <clears throat> came from Rubin and, and uh, the group of people um, around that camp. Uh, and that camp, in, in my basic understanding, I, I could certainly be wrong here, um, developed missingness methods uh, and causal inference methods around the same time or with the same, you know, um, knowledge roots, epistemological roots, basically. And the idea was that that uh, Glenn, for example, uh, can we, we can give him a treatment or control, but we can only give him one or the other. Uh, but in theory, uh, it's not a far stretch to say there are two potential outcomes for Glenn, one under if he gets treatment, one under if he gets control. Um, 
what's what's then what then got to be called the fundamental problem of causal inference uh by i don't know if it was uh ruben i think it was holland uh, somebody i'm forgetting um is that we can only observe one of them the other one is perpetually forever missing like we can't ever observe it and so now you have missingness language in there so the idea is the other potential outcome is a counterfactual because it's counter to fact of what you actually do observe and there's your missing data uh framework and you know then it's like okay we'll have at it if that's missing data then we can use missing data methods to try to uh, estimate uh you know population averages for uh, all of the potential outcomes under a treatment or a control just even within a clinical trials participant pool mm -hmm. and do we have those analytical tools off the bat so the moment this is now formulated as a a missing data problem where you know there's the glenn getting the treatment that he does eventually get and then there's the glenn who doesn't and then there's the bob getting the treatment that he gets and mm -hmm. then the treatment doesn't, and then the ROSC and the treatment he does, and then the one he doesn't. Um, so we have that, is, is that the actual stack of data? So essentially for every patient, you'll have like double. And then if you even have even more treatments, you'll have even more than that. That's exactly it. Yep. Okay. And the methods that have been developed around that are pulled from survey sampling because the survey sampling, the missing data are the people who aren't in your sample. Uh, so we want to extrapolate from our sample uh, to the rest of the population based off of our known sampling probabilities into our sample. And then, aha, that's where the connection is. Um, now we have these things called propensity scores, which is directly pulled from survey sampling probabilities. Oh, okay. And here, the instead of a population, you have a population of uh, everybody's treatment potential outcomes or a population of their control potential outcomes. Then you apply that method and uh, you have all the stuff in propensity scores now. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yep. So, uh, so cool, cool. So basically, and that I think that's an interesting, it's a theme that they talk about later in mm -hmm. the article where effectively a lot of these things are, they go from being a, they mentioned like a taste or a philosophy to the advances come from helping to sort of quantify and make these things very precise. And then by bringing that precision in, it allows us to bring in other methods from other fields, other, other the other realms of statistics to bear on that. So now we have propensity scores on these things. Um, yep. Yep, and yep. we have all the mechanisms that go with that. So effectively, then it's a plug and chug. Um, and then we can go back to unthinkingly applying statistical methods yet again. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, perfect. Cool. So, uh, but on the issue of actually thinking about these things, you said that you had a strong opinion on the representation of these as a missing data problem. Um, so what, what, what is your opinion? Because obviously, you know, we, we just we like to get the flavor of what's out there. Sure. Yeah, I don't uh, it's it's not an opinion so much about, uh, you know, if I agree or disagree so much as how how useful is that concept? And it's more something I like to think about and play with. Uh, it comes from uh, I. So the background, the quick background here is I started off writing my dissertation as a causal inference dissertation, but my advisor um, and I uh, a year in realized we didn't have uh, the sample size to do it. We had a much larger sample, but by the time we looked at the actual analysis sample, it, just, it was like just maybe just over a hundred people, and we couldn't uh, do what we what we had wanted to do. So we pivoted and uh, turned it into uh, let's deal with the missing data in this longitudinal sample. Um, and so because of that, I got really familiar with um, actual what it meant for data to actually be missing 
and to use the, basically the same method to deal with that as you would to recover a potential outcome distribution. Um, and so for me, it's it's there's a very deep uh, difference between this is actual missing data and this is um, an analogy of missing data. And so uh, it's I, you know it's I don't I, I was talking to a, a colleague about this who is not in statistics but is very interested in these methods. And uh, they were saying, well, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I get that. I don't know how many people actually believe that you're necessarily there. There are two actual potential outcomes and one is missing in a parallel universe. But you see, once you use the word parallel universe, it gets really interesting to think about philosophically and even, you know, dipping into some of the physics uh, work on parallel worlds and how to interpret, uh, was it the Copenhagen interpretation or whatever it is of, um, I'm starting to spin off into the who knows where, but the unknown territory. It's philosophical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. So that's it. That yeah. You know. Yeah. Actually, I was, I was one of the things I was wondering about this is, are there ways to bring in external data, so extra data, to help with these, for example, propensity scores, and to essentially, can you enrich your own data set, um, with external information to help you get a better idea about what these propensity scores are and better ways to essentially fill in the gaps for missingness. Yeah, and you're kind of yeah. Yeah, you're kind of teeing up a, an an idea, one of the connected ideas here which is uh transport it's called transportability. In my basic understanding, it's just a word for generalizability of your causal findings. So if you have like observational data and you adjust it using propensity scores to see what if x had been randomized. That's essentially what observation causal inference methods do in statistics. They try to replicate randomization that didn't happen. Um, you have to make some strong assumptions to do that, but it's doable. Um, if you can do that, then does my causal effect, does it generalize to this other population? So what you're talking about is the other way where it's, and work has been done on this, where you would take, you know, something, a finding from a clinical study where they did randomize X. Uh, and then say, okay, well, if this was the effect size in this uh, study sample, how does it uh, translate to my current sample? Um, that's it's maybe observational. It's out in the world uh, when X wasn't randomized, but I know these like demographic features, and I can adjust to sort of match what was in the clinical trial. So there, yeah, there's uses of combining data sets to get a better inference causally for like what's in front of you. Yeah. As a little bit of a side note, and this could be a, a separate conversation, but you know, you're here, so we might as well see where it goes. Um, when people well, talk that's about a bad way to come. yeah, but like uh, when people talk about generalizability, um, especially in medical care, uh, one of my pushbacks is that, and people say, oh, we need these more generalizable algorithms, we need these more generalizable warnings and things like that. My main pushback is, no, you don't. No one actually wants a generalized algorithm. What they want is a specific algorithm that doesn't tell them how it affects them or their patient. They, they want a highly personalized one. And when they say generalizable, what they really mean is only generalizable enough so that it works on the one person I care about or the one set of patients. Thoughts, comments on that idea? Oh, yeah. I mean, don't. Yeah, well, this is bad to get me started on since this is my direct line of, uh, of research. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, that's what, you know, what I do at Stats of One uh, and what N of One methods and within individual methods are all about. What What is the, if you are a population of uh, different instances at different points in time, what are the general patterns in that population? And how can we extrapolate from the data that we observe on you 
for the short amount of time to what could be the general trend for you. Um, and then it's gravy if it happens to work across different people, because then, you know, uh, an organization can start to become more efficient about developing an intervention that actually works fairly uh, consistently across different people. Um, I think, honestly, I think, I feel like that is, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to speak for people long gone into the past, but I feel like that's the more, uh, that has been the more desired and intuitive um, target uh, this whole time. It's just that we didn't have those methods or that data at the time. But um, I'm going to walk that back a little bit and say like statistics from, you know, from the Statista and the, the German for state was meant for administrators, you know, dealing with populations. Um, but very much in the clinic, yeah, the population is the patient or the athlete if you're in, in fitness, you're a sports team, you know, yeah. See, yeah. I stopped myself. Thank you, oh, yeah. Very good. It's it's a admirable self-control there. Um, I'm just going to keep going on this topic. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I see your self-control and raise you a, we're going to keep going. Um, yeah, so... Because one of the things that, you know, uh, for my work in personalized time series mo modeling is that I put so much effort into the inference side of essentially what algorithm can I design that's really good at probing at personalized uh, an individual patient's data to actually understand, for example, the personalized dynamics. And I had the extreme benefit of dealing with very high frequency data. So I was sampling a lot from an individual patient across multiple channels. Um, they were confined to relatively similar types of clinical scenarios. Um, but I think the main thing is I had so much data there that I could actually design an algorithm that was really good at just probing at, you know, hours turns into days of data for yeah. each individual patient and really learning those things. And what was nice is that at the end, it was a generalized algorithm, but it was a generalized algorithm that really learns how to probe the personalized bit. And then once we learn that, then you can really exploit the benefits of an algorithm that understands the person very well. So essentially we have one algorithm that learns and then it proposes the model. And that second model, then it knows the patient pretty darn well in most cases. Um, and that seemed to work well. So is that, but oh, I guess the, the issue is that there, I wouldn't call that a uniquely statistical piece of work as more of a piece of engineering um, mm -hmm. where in non-statistical in many ways, where effectively um, the first part of the algorithm was literally just trying to figure out how to construct one of these things. And then there's only a statistical model that came out after that. So I guess, I don't know, it just, it doesn't have that nice, clean, sexy, probably statistics only type approach to it. Um, it gets into the weeds. What are your no, I think that, that yeah. That touches on actually one of the things in the article. See what I did? Brought it mm -hmm. back. Um, yep. I suck at that. So I'm always proud of myself when I do that. <laughs> um, but one of the themes was how uh, modern statistics is really uh, this amalgam now of its, its, its statistics combined with machine learning or computer science where we're, we're starting to blur the lines between, um, you know, like uh, what a, a estimation of a population quantity versus um, generalizability and prediction because the flavors are very similar they, they're very you know they're they're very similar in, in goal um but this this would be more of a prediction flavor where it's like we just need something like less good enough for this one person and it works fairly well from time to time and and what's good enough isn't like one fixed intervention or one fixed um, tool 
It's an adaptive algorithm. It's an adaptive tool that adapts over time to help you figure out what your patterns are as they shift over time. So yeah, so now we're going into like an engineering type of framework uh, using some statistical ideas. So yeah, I, I think it, it speaks very much to what they were talking about um, as well. Um, yeah, it actually fits in a few places because they have the uh, generic computation algorithms. Mm. And one of the uh, interesting things there is that they talk about how especially for example the for example the op optimization versus maximum likelihood approaches mm. um is just one of the examples where they talk about how we took these mathematical uh methods from other other areas of applied mathematics um or even theoretical mathematics and apply them to the problem at hand to have an inference and one of the nice things is that if you can disconnect the actual statistical model from the computation required for inference over that model. Um, it's very useful because, oh, think about not having that. Or effectively, every time you have a new proposed statistical model that you need to hand construct the, the inference to fit those parameters. And, you know, that, that, that's a thing. I mean, that, that's not just like, oh, we're talking about something that was, you know, back in the heyday. You know, that one of the main reasons I think why a lot of young statisticians have so much trouble learning models quickly is because each model actually comes with a, bespoke statistical inference process that they mm. would have to learn for those mm -hmm. um and seeing those things get pulled apart for example like with probabilistic programming things like that where you have these two separate things and now you only have to learn the model and the inference will handle itself uh deep learning i think is another one of those great things where effectively you can flip out the architecture so the the actual uh deep learning architecture um but you can always rely on adam in the end uh to pull you right. through um <laughs> is the, the, there's something to be said about that that I, I think um I don't know like I, I'm 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 kind of dumb so it's like that that was something that always sort of caught me up when I was trying to learn new model after new model learning that inference step and really understanding why it worked um but yeah I, I thought I thought that was interesting um yeah super quick note on that yeah. this is the side note to the side note but um <clears throat> I think the feel like the statistical equivalent on that not uh not not coming up with um you know like a so so you were saying like yeah the, like there's a different model and then there's like a bespoke algorithm underneath that actually conducts the inference for the model etc cetera, etc cetera. i feel like there's in, in in statistics like this i was just talking to another colleague about this but um mathematical statisticians have really keyed in over the years on the exponential family of distributions because it's the one model that you twiddle it this way now it's a normal twiddle it this way now it's a gamma Totally this way now it's Poisson. So that was their version uh, of of having like a one stop shop conceptually. That if you can build uh, maybe a, an inference engine uh, for this model, well, because mathematically it's related to this one, it, it in theory <laughs> literally shouldn't be too much of a lift to you know do the inference for this other one because we're just changing knobs on like the one box. The trade off is that that's great. They're super well characterized. Are they realistic? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And that that's that's not to knock the exponential family. Like the exponential family oh, yeah. are like chipmunks. Like they get it's like it's like, no, that can't be an oh yeah, that is. That 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 is in the exponential family. Or there, there are some surprising things there. Um maybe my intuition is born that, but I've always been surprised where the exponential family can get into. Um, yeah. but yeah. But uh yeah, so I don't know, maybe 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 back to the to the paper. Um but honestly, I, I thought that this was useful. I, I liked where it goes because uh, it d it does actually hit on a lot of these things. Um, so we talked a bit about um, uh, the data missingness representation. Um, 
what are there alternative representations to this data missingness problem? What, what are other ways that you might look at this? Yeah, well, to, <clears throat> so this touches on, this is kind of, you can see uh, the different ways of looking at it by noticing the, the big sets of methods that are out there. So one of them uh, is propensity score methods. And so that uses this missing data co concept. Another approach, and underneath, I know somebody's going to slam me. It's like, oh, they're all missing data concepts underneath. But anyways, another approach, because I'm I'm not that smart, um, is uh, the G computation methods or G formula methods, which I like using. Uh, they're it, they're also known as the backdoor uh, adjustment formula methods from Perl's uh, CS uh, camp. And the idea there is that it's not it's not that there's necessarily a missing uh, counterfactual, but it, it plays very well with that concept. Um, the idea is that you fit your model just like you do for an observational study. But in a randomized study with X, you've randomized it. So the connection between X and anything that happens before X probabilistically is gone since you've, in theory, you've randomized it independent of everything upstream. And that's what, you, what gets you this estimate of a causal impact. Um, so statisticians are like, okay, well, if that's the case, that's how the map looks probabilistically. What if we do that with um, observed data where there, there might be confounding, so everything upstream of X might be impacting X, it probably is, and it might be impacting Y. What if we take that data and we adjust it such that we take away that error, so we pretend like we randomized X. Um, and the way we do that is we do some reweighting, basically. Um, you still have there's strong assumptions. You need to know everything that confounds everything that affects x and y blah, blah blah but if you have that then the idea is you can still so i like it because you can you can fit this fits really well into like data science and machine learning because it's like look we're still fitting your machine learning model we're still fitting it's the same thing and this is an adjustment that happens after that after you fit it that pretends like um the the x you're interested in was randomized um so essentially the, mechanistically it just it's just a reweighting as if you would see if x were randomized but it's a it's a smoother transition between um causal inference and statistics and machine learning in my opinion because in the pipeline of work there's very little change you're still doing the exact same thing you've been doing the only add-on is now we're going to reweight versus propensity scores where you have to change what your key model your key model is now modeling x and it's a classification problem versus the thing you were modeling initially so now i've added one more step with the G formula method, you're not you're you're adding like an adjustment afterwards. So, anyways, yeah, no, that's interesting. So, just to summarize, effectively, this G formula method does not affect your your workflow. Um, mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. As much, or I guess I mean, it still does some, but effectively, it doesn't affect the fundamentals of your of your analytical workflow. Yep, correct. Yep, everything stays the same. You just do a little extra afterwards. Yeah. So it's 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 very smooth like that, um, and then you know there's trade offs. It, the 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 one that people bring up all the time is, uh, you know, <laughs> statistical language. You have to get the model exactly right, whatever that means, <laughs> uh, for the inference to be unbiased and, and asymptotically consistent. Um, versus like if you if you don't if you're not too uh, confident that you can model the outcome, what you can do is model the exposure. And now you're in the land of propensity scores. So um, there's a school of thought that's developed around these two approaches uh, combined. And the idea is if I'm 
not confident in one, but I might be confident in the other, I'll choose the other one. But if I don't really know, I can use what's called an augmented or doubly robust or multiply robust method. That's essentially just a combination of those two, the propensities and the deferral approach. And the idea is like those, those, that suite of methods says, I just have to get one of these fairly correct. Uh, so I get two shots instead of one. The pessimistic side of me thinks of it as two shots in the dark, but mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. still two shots. Yeah. Um, so is, I guess just between what you just said, um, and you said, you know, some people might uh, criticize you for also calling this all missingness. Are you saying that effectively there's some essentially dualism or duality between these two methods um, in, in some way? Even if we can't, even if it's not quite formalized yet, there there is some interpressure where you, uh, by working with one effectively, there are implications with the other one. Uh, yeah, in a way, there, uh, I don't know. Uh... Uh, yeah, there's a duality in the sense that they they both fit in the same framework. You can both state them using counterfactuals and potential outcomes. However, um, if my understanding is correct, wow, my imposter syndrome is strong on a Monday, <laughs> um, then the propensity score approaches rely on this missing data concept of there's a, a, there is a potential outcome under treatment and under control. The G formula framework, in my experience, in my opinion, does not rely on that. Like you don't need you don't need potential outcomes to, to understand that approach. You just need to understand the idea that you're replicating randomization. Um, and uh, I'm probably going to get slammed for that too. But, uh, but that is the way I understand it. And so there's a difference there. Yeah, so potential outcomes to me is, it, the way I, I, I pitch it to myself and to people I try to explain it to is, oh, by the way, you could do uh, a backdoor adjustment, G computation, um, and it's very smooth with your workflow for fitting models. Um, but there's this other way. If you think of it as two potential outcomes, like a missing data problem, it opens up propensity score methods. Um, and that might be a more viable way for you to go, for example. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a, it's a place for me that's nice because it's where uh, statistics contribute something. It says, Hey, here's a statistics approach that you wouldn't naturally think of if you were modeling. Um, and we're going to pull in stuff that we've worked on in survey sampling and try to recover like a causal effect. Just like you would with this G formula method that works really well with your workflow, but it's yet another approach, right? Yeah. What would, um, out of curiosity, this G computation method, where are its intellectual roots, if you will? Um, um, oh, this is where I'm bad because, uh, I go back to Jamie Robbins, uh, and Epi and Biostats. Okay. I, he, I, I think, I'm pre I think the G formula is, is his baby. It was named, I don't know if it was named by him or named in a paper that came from his key paper. He has these like uh, three or four key papers. So I'll, I'll attribute it to Jamie. Um, and beyond that i my history escapes me for that approach oh the other side of it is uh judea pearl so in computer science um it's the same concept was developed um i don't know how much back and forth there was though because i know they talked to each other or they did back in the day so but he calls it the backdoor adjustment criteria and jane calls it the g formula or g computation um, but it's essentially statistically it's really elegant because uh, it's it's the law of iterated expectations or the law of total expectations. That's true when X is randomized, 
and you just take that same exact form and pop it in when X is not randomized. And that's the G formula or backdoor adjustment. That's it. Um, yeah, at the core of it, it's a very elegant substitution that is conceptually the way you would say, how do we pretend X was randomized? Um, so yeah, so that's the, the root of that. Um, I, I do want to, I I'll in like a few seconds, I do want to also give credit to um, two other buckets of work, which is one is um, matching. So the idea behind matching is, um, again, let's let's think of all our confounders that could possibly influ influence the exposure and the outcome. Uh, and let's find a person who got the uh, exposure and one who looks exactly like them as far as their covariate vector is concerned, but who got the, uh, the control. Um, and then let's see if their outcome changed. That's matching. And then the last one is uh, instrumental variables, which you can ask me about. I could try to explain it, but I haven't worked much with IVs. It's a econometrics uh, method. Very well developed. And, um, yeah. yeah. See, actually, just, uh, just to backtrack, the reason I was asking about the basis of this G computation was because I was wondering if it was at all related to uh, G factor um, from psychometrics. Um, yeah. And which, uh, just for people who aren't up to date on, uh, I don't know, psychometric work done in the 1960s or whatever, um, that effectively they would they would perform like multiple cognitive tests, for example, like what you might have for like an IQ test or skills test or something like that, or knowledge-based tests. And that um, across different uh, skill sets that they would test, for example, uh, mathematical or abstract thinking or deductive um, problem solving, things like that, uh, verbal reasoning, that uh, geospatial reasoning, that they would essentially have uh, this suite of tests that they do. And then uh, G factor would essentially be looking at the underwriting sort of latent variable, um, sort of that single principle component on that and how things vary off those. Um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe it was just too much of a stretch, but I, I was just curious because effectively, to some level, it did seem like it's like, I was just wondering if um, effectively the, the moment you're adjusting for those things, that may, maybe that's where it came from. But, you know, there's only there's only so many letters in the alphabet. Uh, maybe the, the G bit came in from. Well, you know, I, I love that question because I, I was trying to figure out where G came from in G formula. I, I my guess, my gut tells me it's from generalization. Um, and that yeah. was, I think, the original, like Jamie's original concept. Um, and I love it because uh, in a lot of that, body of work, uh, the uh, exposure, the, the would-be treatment, randomized treatment, is often denoted as A, not X, but as A. Uh, and a lot of, I think a lot of us thought it was treatment assignment, but actually it, it was because in the early seminal papers that Jamie wrote, if I'm not mistaken, the drug that was in question was, was AZT. So it was an A. Ah, yeah. So it didn't have to do with assignment, but I think it, it kind of you know, like Ben Farnham's uh, work, it, that, it, it took on that meaning. Like, oh, it means treatment assignment. But really, it was from the drug name. Yeah. Oh, that is interesting. I, I, I like backronyms. Um, I, I like how things, how we're able to reason back for an explanation. I think this is actually something useful because uh, in the machine learning, especially medical machine learning, we fall for this so much, where effectively we see some type of effect and we have some good reason to explain why it is like, oh, this is because of this. Yeah. And then we were like, oh, wait, you coded it wrong. So then you correct it and yeah. change something. It's like, ah, oh, no, this is because of this instead. Um, right. And we're always able to sort of back explain uh, a post hoc explanation. Right. Yeah, cool.
um matching so uh uh can can you tell us a bit more about matching and how it fits into um these other things we have the g computation um we have uh propensity scores how do where does matching fit into this sort of philosophy yeah so uh like for like a fairly easy toy example i often use that a lot of people use is you know sickness level so there's a drug that's out there for you know helping you with your headaches and um and uh um out in the world there's people who have various levels of pain already headache or not uh if you enroll folks in a clinical trial you can randomize this new drug versus the standard of care and see what the average effect is between them so save that that sickness level out in the world it affects how people whether they buy and take the drug or they don't and you have like the people who are the more sick people buying and taking the drug and the less sick people not buying and taking the drug um and what happens is that it what's what's happening with the, the drug in fact is that it really helps um people who are really sick who are really in pain it really helps reduce their headache pain but for people who, who don't um the drug doesn't really help that much um so if you just analyze that data right without doing any causal adjustment from from the real world real world data um you would see that oh the drug seems to be really working uh since most of the people you're going to see are the sick people who are buying it um but in fact if you were to evenly distribute them like you would in a randomized trial you'd see like ah oh, the average effect isn't that great you know because it doesn't really affect it anyways all that to say there's three ways that we've discussed three ways you can approach this in causal inference one is propensity scores you model what the chances of getting the treatment as a function of being sick um another is the g formula you model the headache uh, pain score as a function of getting the drug yes or no and being sick and then the third way is matching where you would say okay for everybody who took the drug out in the real world let's find someone who's just as sick and um did not take the drug what's the difference in their headache pain scores after that um so effectively i'm construct i'm see here's the missing data part i'm constructing a potential outcome it's just i'm using two actual people and the idea is there's only one confounder that can that affects both if that's true then as long as i can match i can get rid of the variation in my outcome in my headache pain i can get rid of the variation in that that's due to initial pain because i found somebody who has the exact same pain score the only thing they are they're different from from this other person is one took the drug one didn't so what's left over has to be the effect of that drug so that's the idea behind matching yeah i guess uh, just uh, obviously mention the obvious thing there you know um if they match on one factor are they actually matching um and if you have millions of patients would you only find the very one who matches or do you essentially do you look across all patients who are similar to that and essentially try to find a matched average patient which then i guess gets back to the thing where you're using patients from essentially you're just using data external data what what's the relationship between that how do you make decisions yep yep yeah no, i i love it because now you're touching on uh the nuances of that method first so this is even beyond yeah, sickness is initial sickness level is probably not the only confounder. So you're already, it's the same problem that all three buckets face. You still need to have all the possible confounders. But to your point, like using multiple controls to match to like one person. Say for example that you only have the people 
just who took the drug in your data set. You have nobody who didn't take the drug. So you need to use external data. Um, how do I then use a matching approach? Uh, well, then one, one way to do it is like you said, to take the average of people who have like all the same sickness level um, outside of your study. That's, as far as I know, I think that's what the synthetic control method is. Okay. You're creating a, an average person that would have been a control using external data. Um, yeah. And the average person is a point, not a distribution. Is that correct? I think so. Okay. I'm not sure though. Sorry for being pathological, but you know why I'm asking. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, that's great. Because again, to your point, yeah, it, it could, you could exploit the richness of the distribution and say, here's the distribution of like one person who could be a control at any given point if they enrolled in the trial. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. That, I mean, the, the, the matching bit seems, it seems engineering to me, in which I say in the most like complimentary way possible. Mm -hmm. um, and so I get based on things like if I had to do something, the matching that that's, it's closer, for example, I think, to sort of the the bootstrapping way of figuring these things out, um, yeah. which appeals yeah. to me greatly because it makes the strengths and the weaknesses much more apparent in my belief. Is that? Um, so maybe so. I might I, be wrong. I've only given this like a half a thought. So go I, ahead. I know. Well, and I've been in this like deep enough where I'm like, well, it's, it's obvious, isn't it? And maybe it's not. But um, I was going to say one of the. <laughs> uh, the strengths in this case of the matching method is guess what with let's go back to propensity scores what did i do i modeled the exposure as a function of the confounders what did i do in the g formula i modeled the outcome as a function of the exposure and the confounders in both cases i had to model in the matching approach uh, i mean there's no explicit model there's implicit stuff going on but my point being i didn't have the model at least up front <laughs> So yeah, it is more, um, it's more, it can be more realistic in that sense where I don't have to posit a model that needs to be somewhat accurate. But what I need to get right is um, how to perform the matching. Do how many people do I use to match to a somebody who took the drug or vice versa? Yeah, more engineering-y type, you know, concerns, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I and just uh, to be clear, when I was describing it, uh, like the first thing I go to basically is is a uh, sort of the first path, like the the first order approximation. Uh, yeah. Whereas you know you say you have this external, you have plenty. If you if the data is cheap, you yeah. know, then that is seems I think something that you you could jump to. You could you know be sort of drawing from those things. It wouldn't require I think a large amount of mathematics at least to have a the first order approximate answer down the page you know it might be totally wrong um but you could have something on the page long before i think some of these other essentially by that time it take to work out analytical methods right right and honestly there's like there are um there's at least one one organization one company i know of and there's i'm sure there's more that are banking on that approach where the pitch is okay for your your clinical study uh, you would enroll, you know, like twice the number of people to allocate to each arm. But uh, one meth one possible uh, way to cut that down is to only enroll the people into your treatment arm for your drug, and then use synthetic controls from like d rich data sets that you as a company already have to construct like a control part of your sample. Of course, that I mean that could be really fraught, right? It's like, well. How are you constructing those mo those sim essentially simulated people? Mm -hmm. like the healthiest is people we can find, I hope. I 
Yeah. Well, actually, I guess it's the opposite, right? You want them to be the sickest, so then you show them. The oh, biggest... no, the synthetic, the controls, you want those people to be, like, not budge, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, But yeah, you go on, because this is this is interesting. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, I bet that, because actually, I think we probably, we might know some of the same people who are working on these problems. Um, mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, finding, finding, well, just finding patients, period is a marketable is is a is a service you know a mm -hmm. sellable service finding patients mm -hmm. and knowing where to locate them um and having that at the fingertips of clinical researchers is, is that's a thing and you could also you know having these synthetic controls how to construct those in a way that essentially regulatory bodies will accept um yep. and also that pharmaceutical companies will accept um yep. uh that is a thing. Can you, can you tell any more about that or just talk off the cuff? Um, I think, uh, I mean, just kind of spitballing regulatory wise, I think, I think a plug, a possible plus is that you have to make, I would think you would, you, you would ethically, you should be making your assumptions, uh, reportable, at least to regulatory bodies like FDA saying, this is how we decided on these covariates to construct our synthetic controlled population. This is the method that we use uh, and be transparent about that. Um, one of the caveats is that if that buck stops at the FDA, then there's less accountability to the, the public. Um, you could make an argument that a lot of stuff stops at the FDA because a lot of the general public won't necessarily understand. But I think that's it's, it's a null argument because it's like, yeah, but the point is like, I'm in the general public, I'm not an FDA, but I'd be able to understand it and critique it and get on Twitter if something, you know, and sound warm if something was off when I noticed it. So I think as long as we make those ideas public and, and educate um, the public about basically what is going on with how we constructed that population, then it can be a viable strategy. Um, and that's not even getting into, yeah, like the, the cost of, of doing that and then how that compares to the cost of enrolling a double the size of your study sample um sorry one of the other ideas was maybe another plus is if if uh, it's feasible then you might be able to to sit like pseudo recruit from a much larger population yeah right like yeah yeah sorry i think More representative that, yeah i think probably part of the issue here is that uh we might be implicitly valuing uh certain advantages of this that the average person who isn't like you know really hasn't wrung their hands over a clinical trial might not be thinking about where effectively, you know, patients are expensive and typically the times kinds you want are rare. And if yeah. you get back to the issue before we had, you know, for example, talking about uh, your, I don't, this probably isn't the exact example, but you can imagine in your own doctoral work where effectively you very quickly ran on patients who didn't miss any and things like that. And in clinical trials, we very quickly run out of the types of patients who we intended to have at the very beginning uh, because they don't adhere and things like that. So so much goes wrong. These small data problems are rife in the health sciences. And then if you take that and you add a rare event or a rare disease or anything that makes them rare, and I think people, one thing people don't realize is that very much in my opinion, but I think other people back this up, that in the clinical space, it is very high dimensional. So it isn't as if any patient ever varies amongst two or three dimensions. They vary among thousands of interventions. You know, a hospital patient uh, if you're in the ICU with a stab wound, you're different from the person who's in there from a bullet hole, who's different in there from a sepsis event. Um, 
And yeah, you're all in the ICU. You're all in the same ward. You might be lined up in a bed next to each other, same IV, same file signs being monitored. But the different dimensions of importance are vastly different. And in the clinical setting and in the clinical trial setting, those same things are there too. So effectively, anywhere where you can scrape a patient or, you know, find one from out from under a rock and stick them in your study, those are the types of things that people really value. Um, yeah. What did I leave out of that? Sorry. No, I think uh, I think that covers a lot of it because uh, I haven't been thinking about this either. So so I'm thinking like you're thinking right now with and getting ideas from you, but that's it. It's a great point about um, the broad term would be representativeness, right? If you're a patient population and and the the other things that are more ethical and helps you hit equipoise are, um, yeah, if those are hard patients to recruit, then you're saving, you're saving time, you're saving effort, money, uh, pain and suffering of patients being on that control arm. Yes. Yeah. yeah oh, so. and just, just another one that I think a lot of people, like we, we tend to take for granted, but you know, the typical patient who you're trying, and this gets back to the efficacy versus effectiveness, the patient who you're trying to help the general patient population is probably not the person who ends up in a clinical trial. You know, the clinical trial folks tend to be people who are accessing and um, have access to essentially the clinical research community. The people who, if you're in a, it, essentially the, if you're an urban poor or a rural poor, or just frankly, generally poor, um, your health outcomes are gonna be lower and you're probably gonna have less access to be involved in a trial to begin with. Trials are many, and I'll probably get lambasted for this, but you know, is that we're essentially experimenting on largely wealthy, educated people who adhere to these types of things um, at best, th those are the best case scenarios, while figuring out a treatment for people who never would have heard about that trial to begin with. And that's not to say that all the people putting in an effort to people who are inclusive from in these things aren't doing work. You know, obviously they are because there's a huge amount of work on this stuff. Um, I can't think of a single drug company who doesn't say we are working as hard as we can to find more people to funnel more, a wider range of people in um, for our trials. Um, but it's very difficult. And hence why these things are useful because effectively you would need, you need to be finding out how to get access to people um, and how to experiment. I mean, an another one, and, and this is super contentious, so uh, maybe this will be the last episode that ever gets aired, but you know, it's like when people talk about um, clinical trials uh, with pregnant women and saying, uh, you know, they say, oh, um, there aren't enough, we don't know enough about the effects of clinical medicine on pregnant women. Yep. It's like, well, no kidding, because like, have you, would you, have you tried to get a, a, a pregnant woman to get involved in a highly experimental drug trial? No, they, they, they are some of those protective, hyper aware, uh, risk averse people, um, that you'll ever encounter. Um, it, you know, this, this, these are the times when people, lifelong smokers will stop smoking because they're having a child. If that isn't a bigger clinical intervention, I, I don't know what it is. And so the the idea that you're going to have these populations who inherently do not wish to be involved in high-risk trials, um, and how are you going to get clinical data on them? In comparison to that too, for example, the the challenge trials that happened around the COVID vaccine, where you just had people lining up saying, yep, yep, uh, pop in my arm. Um, this was back in probably uh, April, May, June of 2020 with a few months of it coming out and people are just saying look if this thing is shutting down the entire world um and it's uh a high risk to the elderly and the immunocompromised and these populations like this why shouldn't i as a you know a, a young strapping person let them assess the risk on it you know we're effectively 
any adverse event I'll have will probably be less. Um, yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm just yapping now, but you, you get the idea that there are there are inextricable challenges where it's not like we can just math away the issues. Mm -hmm. yep. um, if you can't collect data on certain patients, you truly have no experimental data. There's no evidence. There's no empiricism. Right. Um, um, and the, yeah. yeah. Go on. No, super quick on that. I uh, I love that because I, first of all, this is the most um, talking about synthetic uh, controls that I've done in a while. And certainly I haven't thought about it that, from this angle myself yet. Um, but um, I, I I think I do think that a little sort of it's not really pushback. It's more building up your idea. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, where I'm wrong, I appreciate it. Yeah, just let me no, know. No, because I think I feel like synthetic controls are a kind of a way to math our way out, not our way out of it, but it's a way to to math in more diversity, more inclusivity from those populations. Um, I'm on the AS, you know, I'm on the um, ASA uh, Jedi, Jedi Justice, Equity, Diversity, Inclusiveness Committee now. Um, I'm actually chairing the professional development committee. Um, but it's like, uh, it, it is a, I, I hadn't thought about synthetic controls as a way to improve uh, diverse uh, participant pools. And it, it almost, it's like the halfway, right? Like to your point, the best thing would be to actually enroll participants. But if we can, for various reasons, some of them being like valid ethical reasons, a lot of communities have felt like they couldn't trust the system for yeah. good reason, uh, then this could be a valid, math way to do it um yeah all the all the caveats that go on top of it but still it's like it's better than not doing it yeah the, the equipoise argument mm -hmm. yeah i know <laughs> I, yeah I think, I think that's reasonable i guess you know being being out here in north carolina one of the things that i tend to think about are essentially you know we have like inner city populations um who are vastly underrepresented in our clinical investigations uh with few exceptions i mean the, the, without going into like there are certain uh, diseases and there are certain clinical outcomes um, in which they are typically like overrepresented, but very few and don't tend to get a lot as much research. Very broadly speaking, please don't send me hate mail. Um, more than you guys already do. I I, I feel bad if, if you if the hate mail stopped entirely. I think they didn't care. Um, but at the same time, um, and then also think uh, rural populations, uh, you know, Appalachian folk, um, things like that were that we have these rural populations. I think that's one of the things that uh, people also forget are um, a very at need uh, clinical community. And um, it's an interesting thing, for example, for example, like if you're starting, uh, if you're trying to develop a clinical product and th this is actually an interesting thing, it might be totally off base. I don't know, it actually is a little bit on this causal inference and counterfactuals, but imagine you're trying to develop a, uh, a digital healthcare product and well, who's going to sign up and help help you develop that? Well, it's going to be all these research hospitals at elite universities with the high, you know, 500 publication uh, professors and their super eager, uh, hyper stoked uh, doctoral students and their extremely well trained nursing staff who are used to conducting clinical research and conduct and gathering data that is good for clinical research. And so you're essentially sampling data from this portion of the population that looks nothing like what the average small bed hospital looks like out in rural areas. And the issue is once that algorithm gets applied to the real world, there's gonna be all those small hospitals, all those all those areas to it where it simply won't apply. They aren't gonna be as good at collecting the data. So it's, you know, it doesn't even just come down to 
these patients are physiologically different due to their economic circumstances or uh, uh, racial, ethnic backgrounds, um, their uh, previous health habits and things like that. It could just be that the people collecting the data at these clinical um, at these clinical observation points are not doing it the same way um, that they are at these elite institutions. And that is a massive thing. That isn't just something where you say, oh, we'll get better cleanup. It's like, no, it's it's night and day. And the algorithms that you develop, you know, from the AI and the machine learning algorithms that you develop for patient monitoring and things like that, it's night and day what you need to work on. And it's it's very sobering. Um, if you if you want to feel if you want to feel like a like hot good at everything uh, Top Gun data scientist, do not work on clinical data of this nature because it will it will just slap you straight in the face. Like no, you're you're actually not good at this at all, and you need to go back to the drawing board. Um, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I think to use that parlance, this it's um. Uh, what is it? Data drift, or mm. I think. Uh, oh, they say so. Here's the, they call it model drift. Model drift. So, yeah. Model drift, but it should be data drift. Um, essentially, that you know the model doesn't change; it's the data that changes out from underneath it. Right. right yeah. 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 Um, but on the other hand, uh, the other thing is like perhaps the like there's this enriched model that has everybody that you want, right? And the model that you end up fitting is this more atrophied model that is more narrowly applicable because of this selection bias data that you have. So yeah, I mean, it fits in again to the puzzle inference framework. It all comes back. I think Jennifer Hill uh, said all cause all questions are causal questions or something like that. I, I don't know that is a fact, but I do know that Andrew Gelman has said that Jennifer Hill has said that. Yeah. Um, and therefore I believe it. So I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to come clean and now recall that I know that because I watched that episode of your podcast yes. with Andrew Gelman where he said that. So, so that's what I'm quoting. Okay, that's good. It's better than you quoting me having heard him having heard her say it. Right? Yeah, yeah. The the epistemic uncertainty has just like been closed one loop. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, we only have a few minutes left of your time. Um, I was wondering about um. They talk about these things called uh, path analysis and causal discovery. Is that something that we should look into or discuss at all? Or should I hop to the end where they talk about some of the connections between these different methods? Uh, probably to the end. That stuff is super interesting. I have almost zero experience with it, except for basically what the concepts are and what the gist is. Um, yeah, so probably hop to the end. But it, it is it is important. Yeah, it just it's something that I've meant to dive into once i find if you find somebody on the show to you know that i can i could jump on as the third watcher and, and ask questions on who do who knows like causal discovery and dag discovery directed acyclic graph discovery that'd be great yeah no i, I i've been wanting to uh more of these uh uh graphical uh statistics type talks so you had one thing in which you had enthusiastically underscored and highlighted with the words yes next to it um what what was that? What what was that? Yes, idea. Yeah. So in the in the last section, and they're uh, looking forward. So the last section of the paper is what will be the important statistical ideas of the next few decades. Uh, section one is looking forward, or looking backward. Section two is looking forward. And in that section, there's a sentence here. Um, what will come next? Uh, dot dot dot. The safest bet is that there will be continuing progress on existing combinations of methods, and. The first one is the one I highlighted, causal inference with rich models for potential outcomes estimated using regularization. 
And I'm super enthusiastic about that because um, the the causal inference methods that are taught or have been taught uh, traditionally, they'll use standard toy statistical methods. So logistic regression, linear regression, generalized additive models if you want to get really wild. Um, but in my understanding and professional opinion, there's nothing in the causal inference framework that limits you to those models. It's all about how you handle the expectations, the expectation math. Um, but the the actual equation you plug into the expectation uh, chunks, you could you could use any model you want. And so for me, this is a yay because yeah, use a regularized model that you discovered, plug it into there. It's it's the causal inference component is the framework. It's it's uh, it can be about the methods and the the models, but in, for me, the core of it is about how you interpret and adjust your model findings. But use whatever model you want, which is why. I completely agree with that. I think that's the way it's going and that's the way it's going to go for a while, which is, and it's a good thing. Yeah. It actually reminds me a bit about a conversation we had with Adler Parrot. That's Parrot with two T's and an E uh, previously at Columbia. And now I think it's in Switzerland, um, but he was working on chi squared GANs for, I believe, synthetic patient generation. So if effectively to do causal mm. inference uh, with uh, deep learning architectures and, um, Again, what what I think is interesting about that idea, um, I know there's a lot of fluff and hurrah about uh, deep learning. I think some of it's warranted, some of it isn't. But one, several things that are very interesting is one, you know, like the architectures in these do make it very easy to switch out and test a variety of hypotheses. And the architectures also allow you to essentially, I think, simultaneously test and learn from multiple hypotheses. And uh, by reducing these things to an engineering problem as opposed to like a more of these modeling problems, I think that it overcomes one of the main practical humps that people have to get over um, in order to make inference. Now, I'm saying that like one of these methods versus another is going to succeed or be better than the other. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know those things. But still, you know, again, after you're saying like with the like these highly parameterized but regularized um, models and now essentially just trying to figure out empirically what works. I think that's exciting. Um, even if the specific models that are going to work haven't been discovered yet, or in some cases they have been discovered, but we're busy looking at the wrong thing at the moment. Yeah. I feel like also on a general broader note, building off of that, you know, with a lot of these rich data sets now, personalized data, big data, even like big, small data, you know, for one person, uh, it's, it's generally an exploratory market, right? Not like a confirmatory market. We're still exploring the space to see what models work uh, for particular people or populations. Um, so while we're in the discovery space, why not just go all the way and work on those methods? Um, in the meantime, also building ways to confirm that with new data. But um, the idea is that th there are hypotheses that have yet to be generated. Um, and that's kind of the market we're in with, with availability of data right now. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, actually, yeah. it reminds me of, um, again, something from uh, the Gelman and Batari paper, where they talk about how the there's the paradigm of um, where we we basically we have a model and we know it works in certain circumstances, and the question is then what um, like we know mathematically and things like that, um, and then the question is well how can we expand it and how do we get to work in new circumstances and under what conditions and where does it start to fail. Um, and I like that two things one because you know it gets very much back to what you said, but it's a this beautiful sort of coalescing of both um deductivism and sort of this empiricism 
as we explore the new space. I, I think that is that is very cool. And actually, um, it reminds me a bit of actually never mind. That's going to be a total side tangent, and I won't go into <laughs> it. Um, it, basically, uh, the Lakatos approach, where he talks about mathematical proofs and says, you know. You start with something simple, and then if you want to say something more expansive, you do this. And if you want to do something more expansive, he talks about how the assumptions of a proof expand under the, essentially, the the grandeur of what you're trying to say. Mm -hmm. And I know uh, Andrew Gelman has read plenty of uh, Lakatos, um, and I thought that that was interesting. Also, they mentioned Popper at the end. They mentioned Karl Popper at the end, looking for it, which I yeah. think, yeah, I think that's always that's always a good sign. I, I wish that um, these philosophers of science um would be more part of statistical conversations because i think that they had a lot of wisdom they have uh very good guiding points regardless of whether or not they specifically got certain things wrong um because i i think that there's a lot of flack sent at for example like popper and thomas kuhn for the things that they get wrong as opposed to the massive things that they described really well and sort of got things on trajectory um right you know it's like if you launch something out into space and you're off by a tenth of a degree if you're going to be off by a lot in the end, but still you have to say, well, actually they're only off by a little bit. Um, and I, I think that, I think that these conversations about, you know, what has worked in the past, looking up, looking forward, looking at these people and abstracting and thinking about, uh, the nature of scientific development is very useful. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to touch on that really quick. There is a highlight here. I did highlight that, that, uh, Popper mentioned, and then later on, you know, I love this part because I, I have I have this conversation with folks at work too, where some of the methods we're developing, you know, I've had to realize, uh, I, I had this like visceral fear when I first started using them, like, oh, they've never been used this way. There's no like good theory behind this. I know this, this is like my, you know, my bailiwick, my school. And, and then it took me a while to realize, no, 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 but that's, that's how it should be. It's like, that means we're innovating in the right direction. And the theory uh, on the math stat side has to catch up. You know, there because then we're trying to better characterize what the variances are around this or how the estimator behaves, uh, but it should be driven by that. And it says here, much of the history of statistics can be viewed as the incorporation of ideas from the outside. Our strength of uh, the strength of our field, blah, 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 blah. Uh, we can expect many of the new developments uh, to come from other fields of science and engineering in the same way that earlier developments and stats came from within applied fields, such as psychology and genetics. So it's uh it's something uh i think for for any of your your biostats uh listeners and watchers to keep in mind is that's uh that's the the scope of things outside of that realm it's we're trying to develop new things that won't necessarily have like tight theory behind them which is totally mm -hmm. fine that's the point <laughs> yeah no i i really like that and just to layer on that i think it's, it is one of the reasons why people like Andrew Gelman and Aki Vitari, why they're so broadly read, they're so widely interested in things. And that's why people love reading about them so much. And, you know, um, on Andrew Gelman's blog, with all the vibrant debates where he'll, you, if you want to talk to him, um, you just pop a message in his blog and like, and you, you can have a question. And, and actually I'll, I'll bring up one more thing that I think is really, really interesting about this. And it shows, I think the intellectual vibrancy of these two and the community that they're a part of um, and that they've helped build too, because I mean, it's hard to get, it's hard to separate the vibrancy of the statistical intellectual community from what people like Andrew Gilman do. Um, but he, right at the beginning, I, I wrote this is there's this like apostates welcome uh, statement where he says the present review is intended to cover the territory and is influenced not just by our own experiences, but also by discussions with others. 
Now, here's the highlight bit. Nonetheless, we recognize that any short overview will be incomplete, and we welcome further discussions from other perspectives. So that's literally the first paragraph that they have. And then at the beginning, or uh, right on their second last page, um, they have this thing that says, uh, um, this is page 2093, uh, right side, and says, um, but um, in this article, we have attempted off our broad perspective, reflecting the different perspectives of the authors, but others will have their own ideas on what are most important ideas of the past 50 years. And another view is gained by looking at topics and articles published in statistics journals. Oh, so it goes on, but essentially, I know this is an oversimplification, but it's like this apostate's welcome where it's like, you can totally agree, disagree with us. Let's have the conversation. And I think that is a really lively shot in the arm sometimes where effectively things get so combative sometimes where we aren't welcoming of like outside, you know, contradictory, but well thought out views. I, th I think that's really cool. And that's one of the things I really like about sort of the, the community, Andrew Gellman's blog and things like that, where they're, they're actively debating and conversing and things like that. Right. It's like, I think it, it, in my very novice understanding, I feel like it's, it's kind of in line with, 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 uh, I guess uh, my understanding of Tukey's approach, right? Like there's this, this cadre of like the academic statisticians who at the time were very, 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 very focused on confirmatory studies. And he said, no, no, you forget that half of what we do, at least half of it is exploratory. And that's just not formal exploratory analysis, it's form for exploratory scientific analysis. Uh, uh, night science and day science as uh, the, there was a recent article in nature or science that these two uh i think they were biologists or something like that explained it as night science versus day science talking about confirmatory versus exploratory but, but yeah and, and to be exploratory yeah just like you said um and uh uh Gellman vitari said you have to be you have to open up the tent it's not you can have a big tent just don't don't close the the tent doors i don't know <laughs> <what you're now. laughs> keep it open yeah um, and I love that because I brought that up too at, at, uh, and posted this on LinkedIn and somebody, you know, there was a rejoinder in, in the thread and said, well, I don't know, this is, you know, one perspective on it. And I said, yes, thank you for that. And for your input, uh, that is in fact what they've said as well. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Cool. On that note, uh, one of the questions I always have to ask at the end is um, on the issue of different opinions and debates and things like that. What is one topic that you would like to see the scientific community or statistical community debate debates mm -hmm. Ooh, um oh i'm going back to my core which is stats of one and n of one research i think i would love to hear them uh in in the spirit of strengthening that field uh debate the the use of it the use cases uh where it's used where it fits into a regulatory framework or doesn't um uh, so not just the, uh, the, the math of it as well. And the, the theories behind it, um, especially, you know, things that I'm working on, I'd love to get pushback. I, it's nice being one of the few people working on it. It's also very scary because it's mm -hmm. like, I don't know if nobody's checking my work. Yeah. Uh, I'd like people to check my work. You know, if anything, it's like, please just shut me down. Like, at least I know that somebody's working on this other than me and I've teed you up to do something better. So that'd be great if people could debate end of one single case designs. Yeah, at least point out if you like multiply by negative one somewhere in the equation, you know. Somewhere in there. It's just like, right? help me out, yeah. Somebody, cool. I got the wrong index here. Mm -hmm. Oh no, there goes my body of work. It's fine, <laughs> somebody look at it, please. Yeah. 
and he's like there goes your body working some patients like oh there goes my body um, yeah yeah well, well. yeah well. <laughs> well done well done sir yeah cool well eric yeah. it's always a pleasure and i can't wait to uh talk to you again sometime in the future same thank you for having me glenn always a pleasure as well